The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Lord, thank you for another week. Thank you for the opportunity for us to gather at the beginning, the first day of the week. And uh, Lord, we're mindful of the new covenant. We're mindful of the new creation. We're mindful that we are looking to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we're really looking as Christians forward. Whereas the Jews in the old covenant looked backward to the first creation and to the Sabbath rest, we are looking ahead to an eternal Sabbath rest. We're looking ahead to uh, the new heaven, the new earth. We are looking to our own resurrection because Christ is the first fruit from the dead and we are going to be raised like him. And so we are excited week by week to gather and celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead and what it means for us in the future. And now, Lord, in this class, we're studying Christian contentment. I just pray that you would give us grace to understand these lessons and put them into practice and give me clarity as we talk today about contentment in marriage and in family life. And I pray that you would just guide each one of us and teach us to be content. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope all of you got uh, handouts uh, there. We're in week nine. We've got just a couple more weeks to go. As I'm nearing the deadline of this book, March 1st, um, I'm becoming increasingly discontent uh, and frustrated. I'm kidding. Um, but, uh, you know, the time is drawing near. But what has happened, without joking, is I've started to see the interconnection of this topic of contentment with just about every area of sanctification in the Christian life. And that's, um, you know, it's a rich topic. There's a lot that we could look at. But this morning we're going to take up the topic of marriage in particular. We're going to center on marriage more than parenting. But, you know, we'll mention some in uh, parenting. But every week uh, we have done some review, and I think it's helpful for us to do that so that you'll have just some things that, you know, were repeated so frequently that they stick with you. And these two, namely the Philippians 4 passage and then Jeremiah Burroughs' definition, are the centerpiece of what I wanted to teach to you. Uh, so we, you'll know where to go in the Bible. If you want to know where Christian contentment, the home base is, it's Philippians 4. Would someone read that text for us as we begin today? So that is the home base. Paul says that he has learned a secret in the Christian life. Christian contentment is a secret to be learned. And that word is a powerful word. Uh, it tells us that it's not guaranteed that we will learn it. It's not part of the original salvation package. Everything that we need for contentment is wrapped up in the original salvation package, but this is something you have to learn by experience. There's a combination of experience and, and the Word that comes together marvelously in the topic of Christian contentment. You have to be instructed in the Word, but then you have to go through any and every situation. You have to go through it, and in those situations, as you see God be faithful, as you see yourself sometimes be content, sometimes discontent, as you get that feedback loop, you're going, to, you're going to grow into Christian contentment. That's what happened to Paul. He didn't know it right away. It was something he had to learn. It was a secret to be learned. Uh, the word content that he uses there is self-sufficiency, a very difficult word at first blush, but the more we study it, we started to realize it means that I don't really need anything from creation. There's nothing, there's no creature that I have to have if I have Christ. If I have Christ, I have everything that I need. Christ is my life, it says in Colossians. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So if you have Christ, you have your life, you have everything you need in Christ. And therefore, you don't even need to live. 
You know, as Paul said in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so uh, when you somehow sever the tie, the heart tie to every creature, every created thing, in a healthy way now, in a healthy way, you will understand what it means to be content. It means I don't have to have any of these things. Now, that doesn't mean you don't delight in them. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Verse 10, it's not on the, t- on the sheet there, but I rejoice greatly in the Lord at the money that you sent. That's what he's talking about, money that they sent for his support. I rejoice in it. Uh, I'm glad, you know, you, you, had oppor- you had no opportunity to care for me. Now you've sent this money and I'm so thankful. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. So please don't misunderstand my joy kind of an odd thing, but I do not want you to misunderstand my joy. I'm not happy about the money. I'm happy anyway. I'm content anyway in Christ. That's what he's getting at. And so this idea of self-sufficiency. So I will be content. I was content before the money came. I will be content after the money spent. I have learned that secret of being content, well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can be content. How? What's the secret? The strength, the supernatural strengthen the inner man in the inner nature that God secretly gives. That's the, that's the secret. There is a, a spiritual sustenance that comes like I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you are abiding in Christ, if you are walking in him, you will have everything you need for an abiding Christian contentment. That's Philippians 4. Then we have this definition uh, from Burroughs. Someone read that for us if you would. Very, very thick, dense, Puritan type of definition filled with meaning and we walk through it. But it's fundamentally a frame of spirit, an attitude, a demeanor. That's what contentment is. And what that teaches me is my demeanor, my attitude means a lot. So much of the Christian life is having the right attitude in the circumstances you have no control over. All right, you have no control over your circumstance, maybe a little bit, but we, we can't dial it in. We can't, we can't program our circumstances. They're going to happen to us. Uh, We can influence some things, but for the most part, those things, they happen to us. The question is, what is your attitude? What's your demeanor? It's a frame of spirit. It's sweet, inward, quiet. It's a gracious frame of spirit done only by the Spirit of God, the grace of God. And what is it? It it freely submits to and delights in what God has chosen to do in your life. He is your Father. He loves you, but He's going to make some choices about your life. He's made choices about every aspect of your life. And you are willing to submit to that. You're not going to rebel against it, but you're going to submit freely with no reluctance, no hesitation, and you're actually going to, in some mysterious way, delight in everything God does. Even if there's great suffering, there's still a purpose. So that's the definition that Burroughs gives. Now, last week, we looked at the evils and excuses of a murmuring heart or murmuring spirit. All right, we, we did that so that we could understand how evil it is, how sinful it is, how wicked it is for us to murmur against God, for us to complain. It's a sin that we do so regularly and so consistently that we don't really think much about it. And so there's a little bit of a shock value to the the class last week, and it's hard for all of us, but it's a good thing to be told the truth. And so uh, for Burroughs to walk through, for the scripture to walk, you know, for us to walk through with the scripture and see how consistently Israel murmured against God and how God reacted to that, that's a very important lesson. And, And for us to put ourselves in that position and say, we're no different. If we've been out in the desert, we hadn't had anything to drink today, we're thirsty, we don't see any water anywhere, you probably would have murmured too. Um, but at any rate, it was a sin, and so for us to learn uh, the evils of a murmuring spirit. So we looked at that. This week we're going to look at um, marriage and family life. 
And so what we want to do is we want to see how important it is to learn the secret of contentment in marriage. And we're going to, marriage is going to be our home base today. I don't have a lot to say about parenting. I might say a few things uh, about it, but we just won't have the time to fully develop it. So as we look at marriage, why would you say that learning the secret of contentment in any and every situation would be essential to a healthy Christian marriage? Okay, very, very good. Things are constantly changing. People uh, are changing and develop. Anyone else on this? Why, would, why is this going to be, I think, a, a key to a healthy, fruitful marriage? Contentment. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about that. Discontentment is a springboard to all manner of marriage-destroying sins. Um, and uh, if you trace it all back, it started with one of them, if not both of them, being unhappy and discontent in the marriage. All right, one more. Anyone else? Yeah, Kim. Yeah, I didn't write this question on the sheet, but we're going to get into it. But why would it be challenging to be content? Now, keep in mind, your spouse might be right next to you. So don't say anything <laughs> specific about your spouse. You don't know the troubles I have. I mean, if only you knew. Um, I'm saying in general, why, would, why, is, why is it a particular challenge to be content in marriage? Okay, and we're going to talk about we're, there, I'll walk through some of the reasons. But yeah, the fact that you're different. And some of those are just amoral differences. Just you have different approaches to life. Uh, anyone else? Uh, challenges? Yeah, Randy. So you're just with them all the time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is true. That is true. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this, but, you know, Richard Baxter, we'll, we'll get into this. But when you get brought into close proximity with a sinner, I, I'm just telling you, it is easier. I think in some ways it's easier to be holy if there's no one that knows you really, really well. Like I was incredibly holy as a single seminary student at Gordon-Conwell. I remember how holy I was back then. I hardly ever got upset. I was so happy and peaceful. And look what my wife did to me. I mean, that's, I'm sorry, that's, no, I'm kidding. I mean, the point is it was in there. But when you are in cro close proximity, like almost like magnetic attraction, you're going to draw that muck up from each other. Whereas if you keep your distance, you can, honestly, you can pretend. You can be a hypocrite is what it is. You can show yourself to be something you're really not because you're just with these people for a short time, like on Sunday morning or something like that. All right, we'll get into some of those things. Uh, let's talk about parenting briefly, though I say it's not going to be a major focus, not because it's not important, it is, but we only have so much time. But why would you say it's important, and I think Kim touched on this a little bit, it's a bad witness, but why was it important for parents to model Christian contentment to their children? Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the most important patterns of discipleship, is setting an example, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Children are going to watch you all the time. And one of the things we note, when I wrote Infinite Journey, I said there's two types of knowledge, factual and experiential. Factual you get from the Bible, experiential you get from living life. Um, we can see a perfect combination of those two in contentment. You can't learn to be content in any and every situation from a book. You have to get out and live. And so family is a great matrix for learning because you're going to be in any and every situation together. And if you can model contentment to your children, they'll have a tremendous leg up. Now, children, when they come into the world, how content would you say they are? Would you, what grades would you give infants on contentment? I'd give them like a flat F minus. I, I would, I think, three in the morning. They have a need, they're going to let you know. And we'll get to all that. But, I mean, the fact is they do not know anything about Christian contentment. Toddlers don't know anything about it. So they're starting from scratch, and they have to, have to learn it. And modeling, role modeling is going to be really important. 
Now those are just some opening questions, so let's, uh, let's get into it. And let's begin by just looking at marriage as what it was intended to be, and that is a blessing. It was intended to be a, a conduit of blessing. God, uh, in, when the world was in its pristine, sinless state, he invented marriage. And it's so important for us to keep that in mind. Marriage was a good gift from God in a perfect world. And so also work. Uh, it's important for us to remember that work, that uh, there was work to be done in the garden and in the world before sin came. And so uh, we're so used to sin in life. We're so used to sin and suffering in work and sin in marriage and in relationships that it's easy for us to forget this. But God intended marriage to be a blessing, a garden, really like a garden of earthly delights. Uh, and we should con uh, consider it that way. Also, we know it's a picture of Christ in the church, as Paul says, this uh, profound mystery um, that is given for us of a man and a woman, pi a picture of Christ in the church in that mystical uh, union uh, between them. Uh, the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs depicts marriage um, as an, uh, a beautiful uh, gift of God, really uh, like a garden of delights. There's a, a lot of agricultural image or a garden image uh, there. Uh, and Jesus uses um, these types of things as well, the flourishing and the fruitfulness of, um, you know, of nature and uh, of, you know, like a vine in the branch, and if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. These kinds of agricultural images, he used them a lot in parables. And uh, you get a lot of that in Song of Solomon. There's a sense of the richness of um, marriage being like a uh, garden. One of the translations of Song of Songs in 8.10 even uses the word contentment, where the wife is happy that she is able to bring contentment to her husband. I, am, uh, I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Um, it's interesting in the laws of Israel how soldiers were excused from duty for a year so they could go home and make their wives happy. I mean, that's literally what it says in Deuteronomy. So go home and make her happy. So that's like a, an abiding challenge for all of you husbands. Go home and make your wife happy. She'd be like, amen, do it. You know, I've got all kinds of thoughts on that topic, uh, ways you can make me happy. Um, and, but that's that both sides of the equation. There's a sense in which ideally each brings contentment and joy and, and happiness um, to the other. But like the Garden of Eden, there is a serpent waiting to come and destroy it. Um, come and destroy it. You think about the happiness that the couple has on their wedding day, the happiness that they have, you know, early in marriage on their honeymoon and the, the honeymoon stage, etc. Uh, but there's a, you know, there's a serpent waiting. And if you know what to look for, you can see that implied in the command given to Adam in Genesis 2.15. And there uh, it says that God put Adam in the garden to serve it and protect it. And those are the two Hebrew words used there, and they're very important, to serve and protect. I've always thought it was interesting that a lot of police departments use that as a, as a motto or slogan, to serve and protect. <coughs> so if you, if you think of that, that Adam was to some degree to be like a, a policeman in the Garden of Eden, the word serve is a powerful word. The idea is he's going to use his capabilities to bring the garden to its full potential. That there were plants, for example, shrubs and herbs that hadn't been developed because there was no man to serve the ground, same Hebrew word. And so he's going to serve the ground, maybe literally on his hands and knees, planting, plowing, all the things that would be necessary. Even in the pre-fall uh, pre state, that he would be doing the work of a gardener and God would teach him what to do, serve. But then there's that word protect. Now, when you think of the word protect, what comes in your mind? What, what does that word imply, protect? Yeah, that's right. 
you don't use the word protect except that there's a threat. And it's hard for us to imagine, it's like here's this perfect world and yet there's a threat. But we would have to imagine that the spiritual world fell before the physical world did. It has to be that way. Satan fell before Adam did. I mean, that just makes perfect sense theologically, right? So somewhere in there, we don't know where, Satan and the demons had already fallen. And they were coming to the garden. They were coming soon. God would actually permit Satan to come and tempt Adam as part of his plan in redemptive history. We knew very well that Adam would fail. And that's the thing. I, I believe chronologically, temporally, the first sin that ever occurred was man's sin, not woman's sin. Adam's sin of a failure to protect. He didn't protect the garden. He didn't protect his wife. As that poisonous conversation was going on between Eve and the serpent, he should have stepped in and crushed the serpent. And it would be eventually the seed of woman, Christ, who would come and crush the serpent's head. But there's a need for protection. And we would have to say, yeah, all the more now, even more now. Now that we've got the world, the flesh, and the devil, there are more threats than ever before. And like the primary calling of a husband is to protect that Garden of Eden from the encroaching threats. So we've got to protect this garden. Now, as we look at it, we can see in our world the importance of understanding the limitations of marriage. You have to come into it and not idolize marriage or idolize your spouse. What do you think I mean by that? Idolizing your spouse. You're about ready to sing a song. I've got actually, I've got some, I've got a temptation song here. Do you see the lyrics there? I don't know if it's on the next page or where you're at in your handout. I'm not going to sing this for you. But it's like, you've heard, how many songs have been like this? Girl, you're my everything. I'm going to build my world around you. If that's not the definition of an idol, if that's not God, if that's not Christ, it's got to be an idol. Oh, come on, pastor, you're being too... That's just poetry. That's what men say when they're trying to win a woman's heart. You know, it does, they don't really mean it. Well, actually, they do. They do. And uh, so also do the women. And uh, we see all of these empty pagans, really lost people, trying to find something in life. And they can't find it, but then they might find it in a person. And I'm just saying, friends, you as Christians should know better than that. I mean, you need to know better than that. You need to know that this spouse is a blessing from the Lord, a conduit of blessing, yes, but he or she is not your whole world. Other than that, what are you going to say to a recent widow? Your life is over now? You have no purpose in, in living? It's just like the Hindu widows would throw themselves on the funeral pyre? Like you have, you have no purpose now that your husband's dead. We Christians know better. It was William Carey and the Christians that shut that down in India. Now, I'm just speaking metaphorically. It's just to say, honestly, you have a purpose in life that has nothing to do ultimately with your spouse. Now, obviously, it has to incorporate. If you're married, it must incorporate. But we can't, we can't go on like, like Harry Nelson's song, I can't live if living is without you. That's, that's horrible. It's like, I want to get with that guy. And that's an old song. But I want to get with that guy and say, can I share Christ with you? Because evidently you need, you need Jesus. So here's the thing. For us to see you know, marriage appropriately. I mean, it's limited. Even in its best... I mean, the best Christian marriage is till death do you part, right? It's a limited, temporary blessing that God ordains for his own earthbound purposes. And so the best Christian marriage is going to be two full people, mature people, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, coming into the relationship essentially to get joy by giving to the other person. That's, that's really what you're looking for. Like, it is my pleasure. I get joy out of serving you. I, I delight. I enjoy. You, uh, you, got, you men know it's Valentine's this week, right? I mean, it's big. I mean, so whenever it is you give the gift and whatever it is you give this week, I, I remember John Piper talked about dutiful roses. Like, it's my duty to give you this Valentine's gift, okay? It's my duty, and uh, I am fulfilling that duty. Here is your Valentine gift, all right? Obviously, no woman wants that. What Piper does very well in Desiring God is say, if you don't enjoy giving, it's not love. You have to say, it is my pleasure, like he says concerning Christian giving it at all, not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver, right? But you're saying, I am coming into this marriage, not just Valentine's Day, but year-round, I love giving to you. If I can make you happy, it will make me, my pleasure is your pleasure, that's love. Well, that's a beautiful thing, and there's no human relationship in which that can flourish as well as in a Christian marriage. That's a healthy way. But you get some desperately needy, empty person who's been looking for a soulmate, that, that's a flawed relationship to begin with. I'm not saying it can't be rescued out of that aberrant state, but that's unhealthy. So fundamentally, you're saying, I have got to learn the secret of Christian contentment, or else I'm going to put a burden on my spouse that they can't bear. I'm going to put a burden on this marriage. That person cannot be my purpose for living. So that's, that's what we're looking for. Christian contentment says, you know, I have everything I need from Christ. Therefore, let me love you. Let me serve you vertically. I have a connection with God through Christ. And therefore, I will be a conduit of blessing horizontally to the most important person in the world to me, my spouse. That's health. That's what we're looking for. That's the goal. All right. Now, along with that, we've seen that marriage is not just a garden of delights, but also a workshop of sanctification. So what do I mean by workshop of sanctification? It's like, that's so clunky. You don't say that at weddings, do you? Actually, I do. Um, but what does that mean to you? Workshop of sanctification. Absolutely. Something you're going to learn together. You, no one has arrived. I, I, I think there's probably very few people in my life, if anyone, that I think would be bold enough to make Paul's statement in Philippians 4. I have learned the secret of being content. Really? I mean, would you please be my mentor? Would you please disciple me? I want to stay near you 24-7 until I can just... Very few of us are going to be there, and we know that we haven't learned. And that's just a subset, though a very important one. I'm finding this topic of Christian contentment is so linked to the Spirit-filled life. It's a biggie. But I would say this. We haven't learned. Marriage is a great way to learn. It's a great workshop of growth. So neither one of you, when you got married, was there. You hadn't arrived. And so you can really help each other. So let's start with the, with the husband. Could I get a, a, a man to read Ephesians 5, 25 through 28 for us? All right, there's a beautiful analogy set up there. We're very familiar with it. Um, the, uh, the husband is to his wife as Christ is to the church. But there's a lot more in these words than that. Um, there's a process of salvation that Christ is working toward the church. When he found her, he did not find her as she will be on that final day, on the wedding day. He did not find her perfect. He found her sinful. Uh, he found her corrupt. There's, there's stark images of this in the book of Ezekiel, uh, where you know God, Yahweh, finds Israel as an infant and, and all that. And, 
and, and just the process of her growing into beauty and being made ready. But this is even clearer in Ephesians 5, that Christ is working on the church. First and foremost, he died for her. He gave himself up for her. He shed his blood for her. But even then, he wasn't done with her. He washes her with water through the word to the end that he might present her to himself when all is said and done as a radiantly beautiful bride. So that you can, you can see in that the whole salvation process. He died for her, that's justification. He sanctifies her by the washing with water through the word. And then the final glorification, he presents her to himself radiant and perfect. So what does that have to do with marriage? Well, it says in the same way husbands should do this for their wives. It's not exactly what Paul says, but the phrase in the same way implies that you're supposed to pay attention to what Christ does for his bride and do that for your wife. So how would that work practically? Maybe I could get a couple of husbands to say, how, how would this get, be lived out practically? Yeah, I'm going to grab that and I love that. Let me just make it relevant to our topic, okay? Should husbands have a goal of Christian contentment for their wives? Bob, what do you think about that? Absolutely. Yes. 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 Yeah, I would like you to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation. And they should have the same for themselves, and the wife should have that for the husband too. So that's what I mean by workshop of, let's just put the the word (laughs) sanctification, workshop of contentment. That I really care about whether you're going to grow in this area. I really want you 20 years from now to be a much more stable, content person than you are now. And I'm not saying you're going to say that slogan, but in your mind, you're thinking that. And you're going to pray toward that. Like the husband can take the lead with the washing with water through the word. So if you believe this is a word-based topic, and I think I've shown that it is, this is definitely rooted in the word, that you would learn to have that frame of spirit, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to what God is doing in your life. If you want your wife to be like that 20 years from now, then you need to get busy and what Ephesians 5 tells you is that there's a self-sacrifice that will go into that. You need to lay yourself down as a husband, uh, a servant aspect to it. There is a washing with water through the word aspect. There's a prayer aspect, though not directly, you know, not directly uh, referred to. It actually is probably bluntly referred to because you are not sanctifying your wife. It's really Christ that is. But he can use you. And so it's really Jesus getting her ready for himself. So you're not even her true husband. He is. As Paul said to the Corinthian church, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ. He says that in 2 Corinthians 11, I think it is. He said, but I'm afraid that just as, you know, the tempter, the, uh, the, the uh, serpent tempted Eve, so also your minds might be tempted away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's talking, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, but I think that a uh, A husband could say that in reference to his wife. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to another husband. And my job is to get you ready for your real wedding day. Ironically, in the process, you're getting ready too because you're part of the bride of Christ. That'll cause your brain to freak out, but there it is. You, oh husband, are part of the bride of Christ. And it's so beautiful that as you, as a shepherd leader of your family, are serving, you're going to be sanctified too because the same lessons are for you and you need to learn and grow. So there it is. There is this workshop of sanctification. So also you wives, you should have that same desire for your husbands. Like I want my husband 
to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation. You'll have a different kind of role, a submissive wifely role. It's not really your role to take the leadership in the relationship or to sanctify him or wash him with water through the word. But 1 Peter 3 says that a godly wife, if her husband doesn't believe the word, can win him over without a word by the behavior of her life. So that would be an example. I think it's wrong for women to check out of that 1 Peter 3 passage if their husbands are believers. It's like, well, that's for a wife with an unbelieving husband. It says if he doesn't believe the word. Well, that's all it says, if he doesn't believe the word. Is there, are there any times that your husband doesn't believe the word? Does that ever happen? <laughs> all sin is an unbelief in the word. All of it. So if at any moment your husband doesn't believe the word, you have a role to play as a godly submissive wife. You can help by your own contentment, honestly. I mean, sometimes it's just a beautiful thing when I'm out of the Spirit and Christy is walking with the Lord. Was she, if she continues to walk well with the Lord, I'm convicted and I'm quickly, I quickly am brought to repentance by her example. It's not like I need new verses. I know what I need to do, but if she continues to rejoice in the Lord, I know what I need to do. And it's a very powerful example. Anyway, workshop of sanctification. This is something that we are going to be on the rest of our lives. Now, as that process goes, you are going to have opportunity to repent from sin <laughs> and how i mean we are such a mess and if you're supposed to be content in any and every situation <clears throat> sometimes i feel like the opposite is true i've learned the secret of being discontent in any and every situation i could be well fed or hungry living in plenty or in want and i could be discontent in anything any of you know what i'm talking about maybe you have no idea it's just you pastor but i'm going to pray for you um but it's like i don't want to do that but we, it's just the sanctification process is such a humbling thing. It's very humbling. And for you to just stop in the middle of a conflict, let's say, or in the midst of a very discontent time, Burroughs gives you this thing. And I, I just love this. I'm going to read this to you, this extended quote. And this is such a powerful weapon or tool in this fight. He says this, Many times in a family, when any affliction befalls them, oh, what an amount of discontent there is between man and wife. All right, so something bad happens, bang, they're at it with each other. It could be financial, it could be something with the kids, it could be something in there. Let's put it mildly, they're not content. If they are crossed in their possessions at land, or have bad news from across the seas, or if those whom they trusted are ruined and the like, or perhaps something in the family causes strife between man and wife, in reference to the children or servants, and there is nothing but quarreling and discontent among them. Now they are many times burdened with their own discontent. And perhaps they will say to one another, it is very uncomfortable for us to live so discontented as we do. All right, that's just 17th century language, but you know exactly what Burroughs is talking about. Something bad's happened and you guys are arguing. You're having conflicts. You're discontent with each other and you're angry and frustrated. But have you ever tried this way, husband and wife? Have you ever got alone and said, come, oh, let us go and humble our souls before God together. Let us go into our chamber, our bedroom, close the door, and humble our souls before God for our sin, by which we have abused those mercies that God has taken away from us, and we have provoked God against us. Oh, let us charge ourselves with our sin, and be humbled before the Lord together. Have you ever tried such a way as this? Oh, you would find that the cloud would be taken away and the sun would shine in upon you 
and you would have a great deal more contentment than ever you had. I mean, if that's not practical, I don't know what is. You're in the midst of an, a conflict. You're having some bad news has happened to you. Something is, str and you're struggling. And instead of dealing with it properly, now you're arguing and fighting. What does Burroughs tell you to do? Put it in 21st century language, okay? Repent of your sin. But he's speaking of a formal pattern of that though, isn't he? What does he want you to do in repenting? Pray together. Pray together. Confess your sins out loud. Humble yourself before God. He actually says, maybe some of these things have come because you misused the blessings. Could be a money thing. And it's like you, God gave you money and he wanted you to give it away. And you didn't. And now, some significant bills that you didn't foresee have come into your life, whatever. It might be something like that. But in any case, there's plenty of ground for confession. He wants the husband and wife to literally go into the room, close the door, kneel down together and confess their sins out loud and pray and humble themselves and be there a while. Be broken before God. Like James 4 says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. That's the language of contentment. You're, you're submitting yourself under God's wise and fatherly hand. But you haven't been up till then. And so you have to confess. You said, Lord, we've been discontent. We've been angry. We've been carnal. Please forgive us. And would you please give us a peace and a confidence that you'll address this financial situation or this medical need or this thing with our kids or whatever, that you give us that confidence. And he says, it'd be like, I mean, the situation won't have changed. But all of a sudden the clouds roll away and you have a, a sense of the peace and joy again in, the, in your Christian lives and a confidence that God's going to solve this. You're going to work together. And, it, and then it just goes, it goes away. And then you're united again and you're at peace again. This is a powerful tool. And when I said put it in 21st century language, ironically, it looks a lot like it did in 17th century language. Yeah, the two of you get alone, pray and confess your sins to God for a while. And what's going to happen is you're going to find your peace and joy will be restored. It's very powerful. Also, what's going to happen is you're confessing your sins. You're going to stop blaming the other person. You're going to start seeing that your own sin is part of the problem. You're going to be humble in, in the face of your, of your spouse. She'll be humble or he'll be humble in, in, you, in your presence. And there'll be a real uni unity there. So I would just commend that to you. Now, one thing I've noticed and I, I, as I was writing this chapter, I was thinking about marriage vows because, you know, I do weddings and I was thinking about, I've thought about weddings a lot more in the last 20 years than I ever did, ever did before. I mean, I definitely thought about wedding a lot on May 14th, 1988. Um, I did, I promise. Um, but I didn't think about it much, that much before that. Um, but I've thought about it a lot now as a pastor. And uh, there's an awful lot of beautification that goes on. And it's really expensive, I found, <laughs> the beautification. Flowers. I can't believe how much a wedding cake costs, but you know those that bake it say you don't know all the work that goes into it. There's high expectations. Fine. Um, <laughs> a lot of flowers, a lot of beautiful clothes. But what's the glowing heart of the wedding ceremony? What's the center? What is the, if I could use this language, the magic moment? Huh? The vows. The vows. That's it. Everything else is really just pretty window dressing. It's the vows. My brother-in-law fainted right before his vows. <laughs> it was a half-hour interruption in the wedding. He was not in any way repenting for marrying my sister. But it, it, that was the question at that moment. I remember, this is being videoed. I'm sorry. I don't, I'm gonna say it, but it did happen, and he was eager to do it. But he had a 
rough morning. He had gotten locked in his attic. He had not had breakfast. It, it was just a perfect storm of phys physiological issues. But what a bad moment for it to happen, you know? I mean, if it's after the vows, it's just their first marriage challenge, all right? But before the vows, they're not married. So at any rate, that's, that's it. And so I take a tremendous interest in the words that the couple says to each other, especially if they want to write their own vows. I need to be certain that there, there are certain elements in it. But as I look back, just in terms of this chapter, there's a lot of the language of Christian contentment. You're basically promising that you will learn to be content with each other. So look at this kind of language. You promise to, uh, for better or for worse. Isn't that, that sounds almost exactly like Philippians 4. You know, well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. So you're saying for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in health or sickness, right? That's all language of contentment. So is this, forsaking all others. How is that the language of contentment? Forsaking all others. Keeping yourself only for this one as long as you both shall live. How is that the language of contentment? Yeah, and we're going to get to that in a moment. The sexual challenge of dis a discontent heart. You're promising not to do that. You're promising that you're not going to have a straying heart. You're not going to have wandering eyes. You're going to forsake. That's a strong word. I'm turning my back on every other member of the opposite sex. You're it. So it's a language of contentment. And so you just walk through. You, basically, you're saying, I am going to be content with you. I'm going to be content for the rest of our lives. That's your promise. That's what you're doing. I heard that John Piper had this text read, and, I, and a few other couples in the 20 years I've done weddings, a few have chosen this, and I love it when couples do. Sometimes if they, if they don't know what, to, what scripture to have read, I would commend Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. Could someone read this uh, for us? <clears throat> Now, you could say that's a little gloomy for a wedding, you know? <laughs> it's like we're hoping for better than that, but, you know, you may not get better than that. And what you're saying is, it doesn't matter what God gives me in this world. Now, Habakkuk was in a unique situation. The Babylonians were going to invade. And it was going to be worse than this. Their city was going to be burned. Their cities were going to be burned with fire, raised to the ground. People were going to be slaughtered by the sword, famine, and plague. It was a terrible time that was coming. And Habakkuk was aware of that. But he said, you know, no matter what happens on earth, what? What does he say? No matter what happens on earth, what will he do? He will rejoice in the Lord, always. It's just Philippians is what it is. I will rejoice in the Lord. And then he even reiterates or predates, pre-states, the secret that Paul found of Christian contentment in Philippians 4.13. I can do everything through him who strengthens me. Do you see the strength theme again? The sovereign Lord is my strength. He is the one that will enable me to do that. Anyway, that's a very good uh, wedding scripture to read because you're saying, I will learn to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and be content no matter what happens in our marriage. And it's a lifetime quest. I mean, it, the young man and woman who speak these vows to each other can scarcely imagine, you know, what it's going to take to fulfill them in the decades that will follow. They greatly underestimate how hard it's going to be. God will providentially stretch both of them seemingly to their breaking point and will teach them what genuine, genuine godliness and supernatural unity is all about. So it's going to be a journey, but it's a journey of contentment. It's a journey where you're learning the secret in any and every situation. Now, the reality is it's going to be hard. So we can talk you know, all the flowery, uh, you know, in the Garden of Eden images and all that, but the fact of the matter is it's a very, very hard 
journey. Now, this is Martin Luther. I love this. Luther is just a funny man. I mean, let's just be honest. He's one of my favorites to read in church history. History. John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, not so much. All right, pretty much at all. All right, I've often thought, an evening with, all right, Martin Luther, if you could speak German, you're, I mean, you're in for a good time. You're going to have a fun time. Charles Spurgeon the same way. You have a good time. John Calvin, John, Jonathan Edwards, they're going to bed early after having ate very little. Um, and, you know, he's got, you know, 13 hours in his study a day and he's only put 11 in. So have a good night. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, but with Luther, it's going to be a fun time. Look what he says here about marriage. He ma- married to Katie Von Bora. What a surprise that was. I, I think it's funny. Uh, Roland Baton captures what his life as a bachelor was like. He said he washed his sheets once a year, whether they needed them or not. I don't know if he said it, but he literally once a year. Was, I mean, it was just, oh my goodness. And imagine as a woman stepping into that pattern of life and saying, okay, we're making some changes here. Anyway, um, this is what he wrote. Good God, what a lot of trouble there is in marriage. <laughs> Adam had made, has made a mess of our nature. Think of all the squabbles Adam and Eve must have had in the course of their 900 years. <laughs> Eve would say, you ate the apple, and Adam would retort, you gave it to me. <laughs> So are we, are we doing that again? Are we going back to that moment again? <laughs> but I, it's just funny. But that's, it's like a little bit of a glimpse into their marriage. You know, she gave as well as she got. I mean, they, they, the two of them were very verbal, putting it mildly. Um, I've got a lot of other memories, but I'm not going to do it. It won't be helpful right now. But you should read some of the table talks and all that while he's sitting there with his buddies and she's serving table and... And he says some snarky comment, and she gives it right back. And it's kind of an interesting moment, so it's some of the more fun reading you'll ever do. Paul actually cites the superiority of singleness. Now, I want to bring this up to you to show you the challenges of contentment in marriage. It's easier to be content as a single person. Paul would agree. He would say it is actually easier. You'll reach a deeper level of contentment if you can do it as a married person, that's true. There'll be certain levels of your sin nature that honestly never really get touched in life. And you can go to heaven that way. And Paul actually says, if you can do it, do it. Because you you don't need to get to the lowest level of your sin nature and rummage around in there. If you can just pack that up and deal with it at glorification, it's so much better. And you can serve the Lord in a very simple, straightforward way. But this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. I, would, I want you to be without concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and he is divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but because of what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. So Richard Baxter, in his Christian Directory, um, it's an incredible book on Christian ethics. He actually, in a, I mean, there were no list, Lakers, list makers like the Puritans. They, they could get out to 20, 25 points. So I'm just going to give you some of the ways that Richard Baxter says that marriage is a challenge to Christian contentment. Number one, marriage ordinarily plunges men into an excess of worldly cares. It multiplies their business and usually their wants. There are many things to mind and do. There are many to provide for. You must look for many rubs and disappointments. Your natures are not so strong, content, and patient 
as to bear all these without frustration. So you're going to have a busyness to your life as a married man and father that you won't have as a single man. Paul said that. He really did. Uh, number four, a married life contains far more temptations toward worldliness or covetousness than a single life. For when you think you need more, you will desire more. Birds and beasts that have young ones to provide for are most hungry and inordinately greedy. And it is not only till death that you must now lay up. You must provide for children who survive you, or even grandchildren. There are certain expectations, right? Number seven, and this is really powerful. There is a meeting of faults and imperfections on both sides that make it much harder to bear the infirmities of, the, of others aright. If one party only were discontent and impatient, the steadfastness of the other might make it more tolerable. But we are all sick of the same disease. Powerful statement. When weakness meets with weakness and pride meets with pride and passion with passion, it exasperates the disease and doubles the suffering. Number nine, the business of a married state often devours almost all your time so that little is left for holy contemplations or serious thoughts of the life to come. All God's service is contracted and thrust into a corner and done as it were on the by. The world will scarcely allow you time to meditate or pray or read the scripture. You think yourselves like Martha under a greater necessity of dispatching your business than of sitting at Christ's feet to hear the word. So you're so busy and that's going to tempt you, but you'll have less time to attend to your soul, to really get your heart in a happy state in the Lord, to really have a good quiet time and a good prayer time and, and pull aside and work on your soul like you can do as a single person. And then number 10, he goes, circles back, and this is a very powerful idea. He says, there is so great a diversity of temperaments and degrees of understanding that there are scarce any two persons in the world, but there is some unsuitableness between them. Like stones that have some unevenness that makes them lie crooked, it should be crooked, in the building, there will be some crossness of opinion, disposition, interest, or will by nature or custom and education which will stir up frequent discontents. So you imagine like a stonemason that's putting like field stones together and he's trying to find stones that will match and just no stones are ever going to perfectly match. You've got high spots and low spots and gaps. So it is with a, a man and, and a woman. As they come together, their sin natures and their tendencies both amoral and immoral issues that come up, both just how you approach life and then your own sin nature, they're going to match up and make it hard to be content. Whereas if you're a single person, you will not know anyone to that level. You really just won't. You'll see the surface of most people and you won't have to get to that level even in your own heart. So that's what we're dealing with. It's a challenge so as much as we want to say how wonderful marriage is, a Garden of Eden and the delights and Song of Solomon and all that, this is reality. Romans 7 says we all have sin in our hearts. The very thing we hate, we do. The very thing we want to do, we do not do. That's both of you. And so you're going to kind of come together and try to make it work. And you need to. So that's the challenge. It's not going to be, it's not going to be easy. Now let's talk about the deadly danger of sexual discontent. We have to talk about this. Uh, the Bible makes it plain that adultery is a devastating, life-altering event. We all can read it in David's life. I mean, really what happened in that chapter where he saw Bathsheba on the roof is almost like a continental divide in his life. It's like 
up until that moment, it was all like this. And after that moment, it was all like that. And you know what I'm talking about. It's just a lot of things started happening in his life that never was going on before. And especially in his family, lots and lots of trouble in his family. That's really where the, the poison came with Amnon and Tamar and with Absalom and, and all. It was just a, a steady stream of problems in his home, in his family. And I think on his deathbed, you could well imagine that David wishes that he had never done that. If he had that moment, one moment to live over again, that would have been it. Well, the book of Proverbs makes it plain that an adulterer can never find forgiveness from the man whose wife he has sinned with. In Proverbs 6, it says, A man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great it is. Proverbs 5 says, at the end of your life, you'll groan, you'll wish you hadn't done it, putting it mildly. You'll find disgrace in the assembly. Could even cost you your life. The young man going in with the adulterous wife, he goes in with her, little knowing it says it will cost him his life. He'll find an arrow in his liver. So it's, it's deadly. The greatest concern of all, of course, is the uh, judgment of God. He says, why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. So these are serious warnings. Serious warnings. Some time ago, I was reading on the internet a story. I could not find it for my book, but I'm going to put it in, the, in there anyway. Actually, it's kind of interesting. You know, I, it was about a, a British businessman, not a Christian, not a Christian story, um, but he committed adultery at a uh, um, Christmas party, and it led to an avalanche of devastation where eventually he was found by the reporter as a heroin addict under a bridge in London. And it was step by step by step, and it all started there. And again, there was no Christ in the story. That he was not a Christian. He wasn't claiming. She wasn't. It's not. And it's interesting because it just dis- disappeared into the ether world, the cyber world. I couldn't find it. But actually, in a way, it's just, that's what, it's just like the, these wraiths that come past us in the night and they go on telling their tale of woe and how many millions of stories could be told like, just like that. So the root cause of all of it, we could say, for our purposes, is discontent. It all starts with a greed or a covetousness in the heart of one of the both of them. And it isn't just men. Though the book of Proverbs is written for very much from a male point of view. It's a father giving advice to a grown son. And you can't rewrite it. You can't make it egalitarian language. There's nothing that can be done for it. It's the way it was intended. Listen, my son, and let me warn you about X. That's how it's written, and it's not going to be changed. But we know that it's a problem for both men and women. And it all starts here. Could someone read James 1, 13 through 15? James says, every sin starts with evil desire. That's where all of it starts. It says the same thing in James 4. Your desires battle within you. You want something and don't get it. That's where it all starts. It starts with an evil desire. Or Jesus would say the evil eye. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
So we can imagine in the Sermon on the Mount, what he's talking about there is an evil desire. You're looking out for something and you want something and you go after it. And that desire makes your whole life dark. That's what I think he's saying. Or uh, Peter talks about um, false teachers who are very fleshly type. These are not the legalistic style of false teacher. This is the licensed style of false teacher. And it says of this false teacher, he has eyes full of adultery and he never stops sinning. So he's just constantly looking around. He's got hungry eyes. Now, the remedy in Proverbs 5, the clear remedy is in verses 15 through 19. Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. What's the remedy? Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. I don't think it's hard for us in this course to see this as the language of contentment. Be satisfied with what God has provided for you. Isn't that what he's saying? Be satisfied with what God has provided for you. I was reading Matthew Henry's comments on that, on, on, and they, I said, this is definitely going in my book. So thank you, Matthew, for helping me write my book. Long block quotes are the key. It's the key. All right. <laughs> I'm kidding. I have to say, say some of my own things. But this is what Matthew Henry says. He says, let him that is married take delight in his wife and let him be very fond of her not only because she is the wife that he himself has chosen, and he ought to be pleased with his own choice, guys. That's pretty, I love that. But because she is the wife that God in his providence has appointed for him, and he ought to be much more pleased with basically God's choice. Pleased with her because she is his own. So just enjoy her and be fond of her, he says. And uh, think yourself very happy in her. Look upon her as a blessed wife. Let her have thy blessing. Pray daily for her and rejoice with her. Let her know you are a blessing to me. And let her be what you seek at the end of a hard day's work. Go home to her. Talk to her. Include her in your day. Desire no better diversion from severe study and business than the innocent and pleasant conversation of thy own wife. Let her lie in thy bosom as the poor man's ewe lamb did in his. And do thou repose thy head in hers, and let that satisfy thee at all times. It's just definitely the language of contentment. Despise the very thought, now listen to this, of turning away from her to another woman. He uses very strong language here. Why will thou be so sottish? I had to look up the word. A sot is a drunk. So sottish is drunkenly stupid. Why would you be so stupidly drunk? Such, listen to this, an enemy to thyself. Why would you be your own enemy as to prefer, listen to this, puddle water, start there, it's puddle water, and that poisoned, part two, and stolen, wow, before pure living waters out of your own well. So that's very strong language. All right, I want to say one more thing and then we'll be done. We need to stop. Um, you know, I, I have a balancing statement. Wives also need to be content with their husbands too. Don't underestimate. I know Proverbs is written from the male point of view. I understand that. A woman, a wife should begin by reading that from the man point of view and say, I want to be that for him. So you want to definitely offer yourself willingly. Don't make it hard for him. 
You know, that's a very important responsibility a wife has. But also guard your own heart, straying yourself after other men. Uh, you know, in my experience here, <clears throat> I would say it's, it's just anecdotal and it's not nationwide statistically. But, you know, and Andy could corroborate this, we have had almost like a two to one ratio of women that have left godly husbands. And so I'm not saying that's nationwide, I'm just saying that's been my experience, that we've counseled with, you know, it's just happened again and again and again and again. So it isn't just the men that need to watch their discontent hearts, it's wives as well. All right, so let me say one last thing. As I pondered this topic, namely content in, in marriage, I came to an apparent kind of contradiction. And I want to say what it is and then resolve it. It's not really a contradiction, but here's the thing. And I've already touched on it earlier, but I want to say it again. Contentment is essentially saying to all the creature world, I don't need you. That's what it is. Like God doesn't need creation, we also don't need anything but God. That's really what it is. On the other hand, marriage is essentially the two becoming one. So that you're saying to this other person, I want to be perfectly one with you. I want to think your thoughts. I want to, you know, have the same intentions with you. I want to be as one with you as the Father and the Son are one. Do you see then the apparent contradiction? How could you say the first to your wife or your husband? I don't need you or anything about you. You are in no way essential to my life. Don't say that. Don't go home from this class today and say, I have learned the secret of marriage. I no longer need you. That's like clearly wrong. But now you see the apparent contradiction. How does this work? Well, it works in that God who truly doesn't need anything has knit his heart together with the church, at least, with his bride, the church. And he is truly delighted when any lost person is converted. That's what the three parables of the lost coin, the, you know, the, uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son say. There's a big celebration in heaven when God finds a lost person. He really delights in it. Jesus said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this supper with you before I die. He really loves and delights, but he doesn't need anything. Do you see that? So here's what I'm saying. The way you harmonize is say it's a vertical and horizontal thing. To God, you're saying vertically, having you, I need nothing else. But now having you, I can then turn and face the world and I can rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, which you do better with your spouse than any other person. Your happiness is my happiness. Your sadness is my sadness. You do it actually best as a content person. That's how I harmonize this apparent contradiction. So let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the things that we have been learning. We are learning about Christian contentment. There's a lot to take in. I pray on this topic, that the issue of Christian marriage, I pray that you would enable us, O oh Lord, to be godly husbands and wives. Help us vertically to be so completely satisfied in God and in Christ that from time to time, if our spouses forget to thank us or praise us or encourage us or become wrapped up in their own world and we don't get our needs met, that we're actually okay and we can continue to love and be strong and stable in that situation. So I pray that we would learn the secret of contentment in marriage so we can have the most robust, fruitful, healthy, oneness marriages we could have in this church and that we can model that then for our children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes 
and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.